Again, this eight-week series, we want to begin with our systematic theology, our view of Scripture uh, as a whole, and then we're going to, once we get through the, the five big components uh, contained in that area, we're going to look at some of the other areas, which how we practice worship and that sort of thing. And tonight we're looking at the L in TULIP, a TULIP, again, an acrostic that kind of summarizes our systematic theology that came out of the Senate of Dort uh, against the remonstrance, against the Arminianism that was going up against uh, making claims against the Dutch Reformed doctrines that we ought to embrace in, in, uh, in our Presbyterian tradition as well. So we started with total depravity, that we are lost apart from God's grace. We are born sinners, okay? And then we went to unconditional uh, uh, election and that there's nothing in us that conditioned God to save us. All of the grace was in, within himself. And tonight we're looking at limited atonement. Who did Christ actually die for? And uh, that actually, this is the area where we, 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 that we, with some of our Reformed brothers and sisters, we might have a disagreement on. You will sometimes hear, for instance, people say, I'm a four-point Calvinist. Right. As opposed to a five point Calvinist here. And usually that point, especially with our Reformed Baptist brothers and sisters, has to do with this particular area tonight, the limited atonement. So this will be useful for us to understand who did Christ actually die for and useful for us to be able to defend our position and try to persuade those folks to come over into our camp. So uh, so keep that in mind. So Josiah Ricewig is back up to the plate tonight. and We're just grateful for your preparation and your heart for the Lord. Hello. Great. Let's see if this will start up good. All right. Let's see. Um, there we go. Perfect. All right, uh, so as mentioned, my name is Josiah Reiswig. I serve as a deacon here at Christ Reformed, and it is an honor to be before you uh, today to talk about God's Word. What I'd like to do is just point out a few um, verses from that paraphrase of Psalm 103 we just sang. So starting here in verse 3, Who forgives all thy transgressions, thy diseases, all who heals, who redeems thee from destruction, who with thee so kindly deals. Uh, this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was written in the Old Testament prior to the coming of Christ. Um, the uh, birth and death and resurrection of Christ was not an afterthought, but it was all part of God's plan, and we can worship him for that. Uh, let's pray together before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. I pray that uh, as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would keep my mouth from air. I pray that uh, if there is anything in me that I want to say that is not glorifying or true of you, that you would keep me from saying it. I pray that as we look at your word, uh, we would just store it in our hearts so that we can practice it in our lives. I pray that as we look at a theological concept, it would not be something that puffs up or causes pride, but that we would have humility with those who we disagree with and humility that you allow us to see what is in your word. Let me pray. Amen. All right. So I'll be talking today about limited atonement, all right, 
And limited atonement is the third point of doctrine here in the five points of Reformed doctrine or the five points of Calvinism. Just a quick review. The first two are total depravity. So that is the doctrine that an unsaved man, an unregenerate man or woman, is in a state of constant sin and is in, incapable of coming to saving faith in Christ without the aid of the Holy Spirit. So there is no good that we can attain without the help of our Savior, without the help of the Holy Spirit through the death of Christ. And so because of that, how can anyone be saved? Well, that has to be 100% on God's part, his own prerogative. Uh, so unconditional election, the you, is the doctrine that God chooses some, uh, and we call that generally the elect, to be saved, and that's according to God's own will and not on any conditional act of man, present, future, or past. So that brings us to the L. All right, so this is limited atonement, and within the Reformed camp, this is probably the most controversial of the five points of Calvinism or Reformed theology. Uh, some dislike the name limited. They think it describes Christ as being insufficient in some way, so some prefer the term definite atonement or particular atonement. Uh, for my purposes, just to keep with the acrostic, I'll use the word limited. And this idea is so controversial that you may come across someone who describes themselves as a whiskey Calvinist. So a whiskey Calvinist is someone who accepts the T, the U, the I, and the P, but they reject the L. So accepting four-fifths of Calvinism, they refer to themselves as being a fifth short, making them a whiskey Calvinist. So you may come across that term here in Anderson. All right. Um, so before we can talk about what limited atonement is, I have the pleasure of describing what the atonement is. So before we even bother about the limited part, let's make sure we understand what the atonement is. So the atonement is Christ's death on the cross as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of lost people and to reconcile them to God. So we'll look at a few verses throughout Scripture uh, discussing the atonement. So here I have one of many prescribed sacrifices. This is in Leviticus 4, and in particular, this sacrifice is for the nation of Israel when they have sinned corporately, when the entire assembly has either engaged in false worship or some sort of uh, mass sin. This was how they were to atone for that sin in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So here in Leviticus 4, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. And the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before the Lord, and the bull shall be killed before the Lord. So instead of the just um, penalty for their sin, instead of the entire nation of Israel being removed because of their mass idolatry or their uh, nationwide sin, their sin would be transferred to this bull and it would be killed in place of the Israelites. Uh, moving on to verse uh, 420, thus shall he do with the bull, uh, this, uh, as he did with the bull of the sin offering, so shall he do with this, and the priest shall make atonement for them, and they shall be forgiven. So this notion of atonement is from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And there's something worth noting here in the Hebrew that we don't see. That word atonement in the Hebrew is the exact same word that is used to describe how Noah's ark is covered in tar, is covered in pitch. So when you talk about in the Old Testament, Testament sins being atoned, 
That's a covering. The sins aren't removed. They're not taken away, but they're covered in the same way that Noah's ark was covered in uh, tar. So this sacrifice, while uh, uh, delaying judgment, while covering their sin in a way, uh, could not take away their sins. This is made, this is made explicit in Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews says here, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So these sins remains. We had a sacrificial, sacrificial system, but these sins could not be taken away. And because of this, uh, the statement here, this is John the Baptist in John 1, is all the more powerful. So you can think you've been following John the Baptist for a while. He seems to be preparing you for something, not quite sure what that is. And then he points to a seemingly random man in the crowd and says the following, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this notion, Lamb of God, is a clear connection to sacrifice. If you were near the temple, you would uh, smell sacrifices morning and evening. Every day, morning and evening, a lamb was sacrificed. So who is this Lamb of God who is going to take away our sins? It is Jesus Christ. And he is a superior sacrifice because he not only covers our sins, he takes away our sins. So in the New Testament... We have the following verses describing the atonement. So he, being Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that he might die to sin, that we might die to sin, and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Again to Hebrews, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus is that perfect sacrifice who not only covers our sins, but takes away our sins. One sacrifice is needed, no more continual sacrifice. So if we needed a gospel according to Josiah, uh, here's, here's what I would say. What is the atonement? What is the gospel? The atonement is that when Christ died on the cross, he atoned for the sins as a perfect and final sacrifice, exchanging the sins of lost people with his own righteousness so that sinners could be presented to God as pure and blameless sons and daughters. Amen. Now, it'd be great if we could just stop right here. I wouldn't be opposed to that. And sometimes it may be appropriate to stop here. That is the gospel. That is the atonement. Uh, but some questions do remain. So when we say here that Christ exchanged his righteousness for the sins of lost people, who were those lost people? What is the scope of the atonement? Someone who never hears the gospel, did Christ die for their sins? Someone who hears the gospel and rejects it, did Christ die for their sins? These are questions we can ask. Next, how effective is Christ's atonement? If Christ died for me, wonderful, what does that actually mean? And these are questions uh, scripture addresses and questions we need to consider. So that first question is, what is the scope of the atonement? So when Christ died on the cross, what was the object? What was his plan when he was dying on the cross for sin? Uh, had you asked Peter prior to his vision on the roof, he probably would have answered the Jews. Uh, so for many of us, we think of clearly Christ's death is for more than the Jews. That's most of us here. Uh, but that was not always obvious. Next, we could say, well, perhaps Christ died for every single person who has ever lived. 
That's another view of what the scope of the atonement is. And finally, another view is perhaps Christ died for everyone who would someday accept Christ. So these are different ideas of what the scope of the atonement is. We can then ask, what is the effect of the atonement? All right, so Christ has died for me. Wonderful. What does that mean? What do I gain? Do I gain the opportunity to accept Christ as a Savior if Christ died for me? Or do I gain the surety, the guarantee that Christ is my Savior? If Christ died for me, am I guaranteed he is my Savior, regardless of my faith or lack thereof? Or lastly, if Christ died for me, do I just have a wonderful example of a man who loved man and loved God? Uh, depending on where you go on Easter Sunday here in Anderson, you could probably hear all three of these on one Sunday. So there are a lot of views on what the atonement, who was it for, and what it actually means. We'll look at just two views generally, but here are three popular views on the atonement. The first is what I'll call the universalist view, and that's the view that Christ's death on the cross, his atonement, was meant for all mankind, so it was unlimited in its scope, and it was unlimited in its effect. So Christ died for all mankind, and if Christ died for you, your sins are forgiven, so all mankind will have their sins forgiven. This is the universalist view. If you have an ounce of compassion in you, I think this is a desirable outcome. If I was writing the Bible, I probably would have done something like this if I was given the option. Unfortunately, Scripture really doesn't support this view. Most universalist uh, ideas come not from Scripture, but rather from a philosophical system. The idea, God is love, how could he send anyone to hell? While not an easy question to address, it simply isn't a scriptural idea. So I won't talk much about that. I will, however, talk about this next idea. This I'll call the Arminian view. Arminianism accounts for more than just this view, but this is a big part of Arminianism. And it suggests that when Christ died on the cross, he paid for the sins of all mankind. So the atonement was unlimited in its scope. However, it was limited in effect. Although Christ died for the sins of all mankind, only some will eventually have their sins forgiven and live uh, eternally with Christ in heaven. So the Arminian view is that Christ died for all mankind, but uh, whether through God's own will or the acts of men, it's limited in effect. Only some are actually saved. The final view, this is the Reformed or Calvinistic view, that's what we'll look at today in detail, is that the atonement was limited in scope, but unlimited in effect. So the idea is Christ's death was meant only for an elect group the elect. Christ died only for a smaller group, not all mankind, but for those whom he did die, have their sins forgiven 100%, regardless of their belief or lack thereof, regardless of their actions or lack thereof. So in baseball terms, Arminianism suggests that Jesus Christ took every at-bat possible, but did not bat a thousand. So if you're a baseball fan, you can think of it that way. The Calvinistic view is that Jesus Christ did not take every at-bat he could have, but he's batting a thousand. Those are two ways to think about it. All right, so before we um, go into some scripture, I just want to remind ourselves, it can be easy when you think of the elect and non-elect, that these are real human beings with infinite souls. And it can be easy to academically characterize God as an unloving tyrant sending um, souls to damnation without a thought. But the Bible teaches otherwise. Ezekiel 33:11, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why uh, will you die, O house of Israel? So even those who we characterize as non-elect in Reformed theology does not mean God does not have a love for them, but it's a love differently than he has for his bride. He loves other men in a different way. Uh, this is uh, communicated as well at the end of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, the final verses of the book. The Lord speaks to Jonah and says, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? The Lord cares for all mankind. When we speak of the elect and the non-elect, we must keep that in mind. All right, so with that, let's now go to a definition of limited atonement. All right, so limited atonement is the doctrine that Christ's death on the cross was by design, not by effect, but by design, limited to atone for the sins of God's elect only, and not for the sins of all mankind. That's the first part. There's a second part which says, furthermore, this atonement is complete, and to have your sins forgiven requires no effort on the part of someone for whom Christ died. So this doctrine says that Christ's atonement was limited in scope, only for a select group of mankind, but unlimited in effect. We'll look at a few verses here. Uh, just talking about that first paragraph, the by design part, this limited in scope. So the first verse we'll look at here, we'll look at some verses in the Gospels. So first, John chapter 10, two sections within John chapter 10. This is Christ speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So Christ describes himself as a shepherd and says here, I am going to lay my life down. He is uh, foretelling of his coming death, and he will lay his life down for whom? But for his sheep. It may be possible that all mankind in some way are his sheep, uh, but later on in chapter 10, Christ doesn't leave that as an option. So within the same chapter, same uh, idea here communica communicated by John, Jesus here is speaking to some unbelieving Jews, and he says the following. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So Christ clearly says here that his death is for his sheep. He is dying for his sheep. And later on he says, there are individuals, these Jews who were listening to Christ, you are not one of my sheep. So Christ here limits his own atonement. For whom is he dying? He's dying for his sheep. We can go now to the Gospel of Matthew at the beginning. Uh, this is prior to Christ's birth, when uh, Joseph is considering whether to put Mary away quietly or to marry her. He has a dream. So looking here at Matthew 1, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Here the angel is describing to Joseph the plan of salvation. This is the plan. Christ is going to save whom? 
He's going to save his people. So whoever he's dying for are people that he claims for himself. They are his people. There is no indication that this includes all mankind. We can continue with some more verses in the gospel. So here in John 11, uh, but one of them, Caiaphas, all right, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. John adds this here to Caiaphas's claim. He said, John says here, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So this is one of the most amazing passages to me in the gospel of John. He describes here a prophecy described by one of the men responsible for killing Jesus. The high priest unwittingly prophesies that Christ is going to be an atonement for the nation. And John adds here, not only is it for the nation, but it is to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That notion of scattered abroad doesn't describe the children of God, all the nations, but only a scattering of the children of God within the nations. So according to John here, Christ is dying for his children who are scattered among nations, scattered abroad, not describing all nations. One last, uh, one last uh, section here from the gospel. This is in the upper room prior to the, uh, in the night where uh, Jesus is betrayed. He institutes the Lord's Supper and says the following, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Christ is describing the greatest love. The greatest act of love we will ever experience is certainly Christ's death on the cross. So if he describes this greatest love, he says that someone would lay down his life for his friends. So Christ here describes his death as being for his friends. And the question can be asked, who is a friend of God? So can someone who is totally depraved, unable to desire goodness, unable to even desire to know God, and unelected, someone who rejects the gospel, and can they be described as a friend of Christ in any meaningful sense? I, I think not. I think not. Uh, so we've looked at a few uh, verses in the gospel where Christ himself and Caiaphas here describe the atonement. And we see that Christ's atonement is limited to Christ says his sheep. Uh, then in Matthew and John 11, it's described as his people or his nation. And lastly, in John 15, it was his friends. So in Christ's own teaching, we have no indication that his death was meant to atone for the sins of all mankind, but only for those for whom he had selected his own sheep whom the Father had given them. And just as a reminder, it's easy to think here, God loves his church and he must hate sinners. He must hate the unrepentant. But we should remember Christ's words in Matthew 23, 37. Upon seeing Jerusalem, he says the following, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Christ indeed has a love for the unbelieving um, but it is not a saving love.
All right, so now we'll look at a few uh, sections from the New Testament. These will both come from Paul. Uh, so Paul here is speaking to some church leaders, and he says the following in Acts 20, 28. He says, Be caref pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So when we describe the church, we're describing those for whom Christ has obtained with his own blood. Christ's object was to re, um, restore the church to himself, to bring lost sinners to himself. His object was to purchase his church, not all of mankind. Uh, the next verse here comes from Ephesians. So this is an interesting uh, verse. We'll go ahead and read it first. So starting here in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So this verse here has a commandment for those of us who are husbands, and it's a fairly strong commandment. He tells us to love the church uh, as uh, Christ, or we are to love our wives, rather, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If we take a view that Christ died for all mankind, what would Paul be saying? He would say, love your wife as you love all women, just she's the one that said yes. As opposed to what I think Paul's actual intent here is, love your wife in the way that Christ did. Choose her and die for her. I love my wife with a zealous love. I have a great deal of affection for many other women who are so kind to my family and make Anderson feel like home, but I have a special love for my wife, which no other woman will have. In the same way, Christ has a special love for his church, which no other man or woman can experience. So in order to understand what Paul is saying here, a limited atonement is in view. All right, so we've talked about the limited scope um, so the term limited atonement, unfortunately, gets attached, even though we offer in this doctrine, the Reformed doctrine actually has an unlimited side, and it's unlimited in effect. Although the doctrine says that the atonement was limited in scope, we say here that furthermore, this atonement is complete and requires no action or effort on the part of the elect. So a few verses here just to show that there is no uh, need for us. If Christ has died for us, there is no more work for us to accomplish. Back to the Gospel of John. You gotta love the Gospel of John all over tonight. So John 6, 36 through 40. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Christ here says, whoever is given to me, whoever my flock is, they will uh, persevere. They will be to the last day. Christ has done all the atoning work. There is no belief necessary. There may be a belief. Belief certainly comes in the Christian life, but that's not what saves us. It was Christ's atonement that saved us. 
Again in John, we've already looked at the verses preceding this section. So uh, Christ is speaking here to some unbelieving Jews. So we ended last time uh, a few slides ago with, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Where this is pertinent is that no one includes yourself. If you have been, uh, your sins are paid for by Christ, no amount of disbelief on your own part will ever separate you from Christ. No sin you can commit can separate you from Christ. This atonement was unlimited. If Christ has died for you, you can take it to the bank that you will be with him in paradise. I appreciate... Um, the notion of calling limited atonement limited in that sense that's limited in scope. But um, when we think of what Christ has accomplished, it's anything but limited in terms of those for whom Christ died. All right, so here is again the doctrine of limited atonement. We say it's limited in scope, but unlimited in effect. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy uh, discussing other doctrines with the notion, with the idea of describing where they error, uh, but given our context within American evangelicalism, perhaps the predominant view is the Arminian view. So in contrast to the Reformed view, you have the Arminian view. Uh, for many of us, this is the view we grew up with. Many of us were saved in this context. Many of us have brothers and sisters, both in Christ and in our own family, who hold to this view. Uh, so I do want to address it, not in the sense of lording any sort of um, contradictions over anyone, but because of the world we live in, it's important to know this view. So the Arminian view of the atonement is the following. When Christ died on the cross, his death on the cross paid for the sins of all mankind. However, this atonement does not become effectual for a person unless that a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So when Christ died on the cross, he died for the sins of all mankind, but we won't be saved if Christ died for you, which is everyone. You are not saved unless you come to saving faith. And there's differing degrees on what role man's will plays into that. But the, the upshot of all this is the Arminian view says the scope of the atonement was unlimited. All mankind is included in the atonement, but it's limited in the effect. It requires something of the unbeliever in order to be saved. And there are some verses that seem to support this view. Here I have just two of them. Uh, so I found these from a track that was um, attacking the idea of limited atonement. So these are the verses that were presented. So 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So who was reconciled? Well, it was the whole world. So the Arminian uh, view is that then Christ's atonement must have uh, accounted for the whole world. He must have paid for the sins of all mankind. This is said more strongly in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation of, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, so how can we understand these verses in the context of what Jesus has said in terms of the purpose of his own death? 
And the key question here is what do we mean when we say the world? Uh, so it is 2022, and there is uh, one of the greatest sporting events in the entire world is going to happen later this year. Does anyone happen to know what it is? The World Cup, absolutely. Are you watching, Deborah? Brooke is? I'm sorry, I missed it. Well, I can tell you uh, honestly that the world will be watching the World Cup later this year. The entire world will be watching. And that's true because I promise you there will be a TV set in every single country that at one time is watching the World Cup. So we can say the world is watching the World Cup, but I will not, probably not be watching it. Okay, so when we say the world, that Jesus died for the world, we don't mean that he died for all mankind, but all sorts of men. Christ died here for the world. That means that the application of the atonement is for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for Germans, it's for Gamecocks, and even a few Clemson Tigers. <laughs> when we say that Christ died for the world, we mean that he has chosen his nation from scattered among the other nations. He is building a brotherhood, a royal priesthood from all nations. When we talk about the world in these verses of Christ dying for them, we mean uh, the global entirety of the world, not all mankind. This is described here in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Christ has died for the world in the sense that he has not just died for Jews. He has not just died for those who saw him in their lifetime. He has died for the whole world in the sense that even someone like me, someone born in Pocatello, Idaho, could uh, receive the gospel and receive grace from Christ through his atonement. Uh, so it's commonly um, suggested that limited atonement discourages evangelism. So the idea is Christ didn't die for all men, so how can you share the gospel with all men? Because you don't know if Christ died for them. And that's true. I don't know who God's elect are, but I do know his elect are in every tribe, and they have every language, and they are of every people and every nation. And that motivates me to pursue missions, both to my neighbor as well as around the world. Uh, so all of this has a lot of the, uh, the clause, if, if Christ died for you. And if you're like me, uh, that can make you nervous. How do I know Christ died for me? We know we're only saved if Christ died for us. How can we know if Christ died for us? Well, Scripture provides assurance. Here is just one verse providing assurance of salvation for those who believe. John 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there is no action that we require to know that Christ died for us. There's no special feeling. You don't need to have some sort of Damascus Road experience. For whom did Christ die? Uh, for, to whom uh, is born again through the will of God? It's to all who receive him, all who believed in his name. So an important thing to remember is that when we feel we are failing in our faith, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but it's the object of that faith. We have faith in Christ's atonement. That's what saves us. Because my faith is not always strong. Sometimes all I need to do is stub my toe, and I wonder why God has forsaken me. I'm very fickle. 
Um, but it is not the strength of my faith, but the object of that faith. All right, so to close here, we can ask the question, the Arminian view and the Calvinistic view sort of end up in the same place. Some go to hell, some are saved. What's the difference? Why should we split hairs like this? And the main answer I can give with that is the atonement is the gospel. It's important that we get the gospel right. What is the gospel? The gospel is not Josiah Reiswig is saved, and now he does not commit the sins he used to. It's not Josiah Reiswig is saved, and now... Um, I am able to live life more abundantly. The gospel is what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So when we talk about the liniment atonement, we're talking about a gospel issue because it is the gospel. Uh, those who uh, disagree with us on this, this doctrine are still our brothers in Christ, but this is something worth writing, 500-page rebuttals to rebuttals to rebuttals. There are too many books, and I've read too many of them. Um, this is an uh, argument that will continue for many years, um, but we trust that uh, Scripture is our guide, and we trust that he will care for us. Uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to study it. We thank you that we are able to see your character and the works that you have done, which are too wonderful for us, that you have given to them to us in your word. Just pray for each of us here that as we go about our weeks, uh, we would remember you in all of our actions, that your atonement has occurred and you have died for the sins of those who love you, uh, regardless of the actions we commit those days, regardless of the strength of our faith. I just pray that you would um, bless us these evenings, Lord, and I just pray that we would return next week. We're ready to worship you together. Amen.